0: You believe it's almost Thanksgiving. Where has the year gone? Oh my goodness. You can turn over in your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And today we find ourselves in verses 16 to 18 of this chapter. There's a lot in the closing verses here. And so today we're going to be basically looking at two of these three critical directives or commands you might say that Paul relays to this church. And he wants them to understand that even though it's you have responsibilities within the church, one of the church's responsibility toward its leaders, but also the leader's responsibility toward the church. So you have kind of a shepherd, sheep, sheep shepherd responsibility going on. But now, as he moves beyond that, and he gets a little more direct about everybody's life, and he gives some commands for all of us to consider. And uh, it's, it's very important that um, it doesn't stop with just the congregation and the, the leadership, or the leadership in the congregation, but we all serve uh, Ken and I are shepherds in this flock, but we are also under shepherds of the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Amen? Mm-hmm. We are serving him. And so uh, we don't um, serve as chief shepherds. <laughs> That's only one person has that role, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so if, if God's flock is to be healthy, if God's flock is to be whole and, and growing, Um, Above all else, the relationships between the sheep and the great shepherd, or the Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, must be right. They must be in check. And so this is what Paul begins to command them. And for that to happen, believers must be mindful of their responsibilities to worship and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, their King. And the words of the first three stanzas of a classic hymn that we all know, Take My Life and Let It Be, really represent what these next three commands convey. And in that hymn, he says, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise, Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. That contains the kind of spirit of the what we're reading here or what we will read in a second, in these commands, beginning in verse 16. There are three, you could call them exhortations, you could call them commands, um, and they, they're given to us one after the other without any explanation. Paul says you need to do this, boom, boom, boom. And he exhorts us to constant joyfulness, constant prayerfulness, and constant thankfulness. And so, follow along as I read verses 16 to 18. As a matter of fact, let's just read it all together. (laughs) All right? Beginning in verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Boy, those are pithy little verses that you can memorize in a second, (laughs) and we should commit them to memory. Um, When it comes to God's commands, however, all of them in the Bible really are beyond our ability to obey in our flesh. We can't do the Christian life in the flesh. As a matter of fact, the Bible says whatever we do in the flesh is what? Sin, right? If it's not done in the, the power of the Holy Spirit, it's sin, and so, some of us have tricked ourselves, thinking, "Oh, I got this. I got this Christian life. This is easy. I, I know what to do to go to church." And no, all that's not the Christian life. Okay, we're going to find out what the Christian life is about. But we have to rely on the indwelling Holy Spirit in order to live this life in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And some of the the, the verses and commands in Scripture are not just difficult, I would say, to obey, but they're impossible. They're impossible. Think about it. In Matthew 5:48, Jesus says, "Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." Wow. Anybody perfect here today? Don't put your hand up. You'd look like a fool. Okay. The only person who was ever perfect, who ever walked on the face of the earth was Jesus Christ himself, right? He's the only one that was able to keep that command. Or could anyone claim to keep the commands in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 39, where he says, you know what? You need to love the Lord your God with your total being, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love others as much as you love yourself. You've done that perfectly this past week. I don't think so. None of us have. But he commands us to do it. And so here our text gives us these three commands, these three directives, and I believe that they're intended for Christians to obey them. God's not a God to bait and switch. I'm going to tell you to do something you can't do, and then I'm not going to allow you to do it. No, he gives us the resources to do what he calls us to do. But if we try to do it on our own, If we try to live the Christian life on our own, if we try to look to our own wisdom and our own understanding, then guess what happens? We we get all messed up. We get all messed up. And so he says, rejoice always, pray always, without ceasing, and in everything, give thanks. I think it would have been a lot easier for us to read those verses if the Apostle Paul would have wrote, rejoice a lot, pray often, and you know what? Give thanks when you can that would be easy. We all kind of do that at times. We'll, we'll try to do that. But when you look at those commands, you can't even resolve in your own heart, you know what, I'm going to start doing this today. I'm going to rejoice always. I'm going to pray always. I'm going to give thanks in everything. You could not come in here next week and say, you know what, pastor, I've kept those commands perfectly this past week. I was always praying, I was always joyful, and I was giving thanks in everything. Now, some commentators, uh, one being John Stott, he says that, well, these commands aren't for believers, but they're for the general church when they gather together. That's kind of weak. I don't believe that because there's other places in the Bible that these commands are repeated. So they're not just for the church, they are for the church, but guess what? Last time I checked, the church is made up of what? Individuals, right? The church is made up of sinners who sought forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ and have been transformed by his glorious power and forgiveness from darkness into light. And so these commands are for us. But what do we do with them? Because they look like they're impossible to keep. I think that Paul himself, when he reads these, when he writes these, and we read them, he doesn't give any explanation. He just says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Boom, boom, boom. Now remember, he's writing a letter, and he's wanting to communicate his heart to these people that he's very dear to. He just says them there in kind of staccato fashion, one after the other, and then he just moves on. But there are other scriptures in the Bible to help us understand what these commands mean and how we can begin to develop an attitude in our own personal lives each day and even a Christian discipline in our own personal lives each day to fulfill what Paul is telling us to do. And so the idea here is God commands us to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in everything. And with each one of these commands, we're going to go over two today and one next week, we can look at what it means, first of all. Let's explore what it means. And then secondly, how can we obey this? Give me some practical stuff, how I can apply this to my life. Now remember, he, at the end of this this verse, down in, in verse 18, He says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the will of God. How many of you want to know the will of God for your life? Would you like to know? I mean, if if I had a little book and said, here, this is the will of God. You know, I could probably sell them $5 a piece after the service. And you'd come up, I want to know God's will, right? I mean, well, here he's telling us. It's free. He says, this is God's will for you. But there is a catch here. Uh, There is a catch here. Because when he says, for this is God's will, all commentators, all theologians agree that that this refers to these three previous commands. Of rejoicing, of praying, and of giving thanks. It doesn't refer just to giving thanks. It refers to all three. And so he wants them to know this, that this is your will, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Um, It's possible for you to know God's will. And we need to express joy, constant joy, constant prayer, constant thanksgiving. This is God's will for those, and here's the, the, the thing that we need to understand. We must be in Christ we must be in Christ. So God not only mandates those expressions of righteousness, but he makes it possible for us as believers to live them out, to articulate them in our own lives. And he's pleased when we do that. Uh, Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, For it is what? God who what works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So when you are in Christ, God is at work in you. It's like when Paul said, you know, the life I live, I don't live by my own power, but I live by the spirit of Christ. I live by Christ who lives in me and through me, but he still has to live his life okay? It it still is, you're cooperating with God, but it's God doing this through you. Now, sometimes you have trouble discerning God's will in different areas of your life, you know, who you should marry, when you should get married, whatever, um, you know, what job to take, uh, all kinds of things. But you don't have to wonder about this, because he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks. They're always God's will for you. You don't have to question it. It's always God's will for you to do those things, But you have to be in Christ. Without having that union with Christ, without understanding that Christ is able to forgive your sins, that you can be forgiven of those sins when you come to Christ, when you come to the cross, when you acknowledge your need of a Savior. When you place your faith, your trust in Christ and in his sacrifice and in Christ alone, he will save you. And what that means is he will save you from your sin. Because we all deserve, the Bible says, the consequences of sin is death. And not just physical death, spiritual death. We don't deserve to go to heaven. There's not a person in this room that deserves on their own merit to go to heaven. We like to think sometimes we do, but we don't. We simply don't. The Bible says we've all fallen short. We've all sinned in a myriad of ways. That's why we need a Savior. I mean, if you think you can get here on your own, have fun. But it's not going to end well for you. You know, you can't be your own Savior. You have to put your faith and trust in Christ. And so you have to be in Christ in order to carry out these commands. We're placed into union with Christ the moment when we trust in him to save us from our sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, Paul says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You are in Christ Jesus. When you are saved, God takes you and he puts you into his son. So to obey these impossible commands, we have to experience the new birth. We have to be born again. We have to be saved so that we are in Christ. And so that Christ dwells in us through the, via the Holy Spirit. Um, and as we learn to cooperate with Christ, and you learn to live for Christ each and every day, you, you abide in him. He, he makes his home in you. And you trust in him to work through you. Each and every day. It's not easy. It's not easy to trust someone else. Given the serious nature of what you're trusting. Sometimes, you know, personally I have issues letting other people drive me. Because I don't like, I, I, have, I don't want to trust anybody else behind the wheel. <laughs> okay? But that's really what the Christian life is. The Christian life is kind of like, you're in the car with God. Okay? And you know what? He wasn't in the car before, but you picked him up, and he says, hey, I'm going to drive. Okay, fine. And you, you give over. You submit to God, and he takes over the wheel, and you're flying down the freeway, and everything's going fine. But you know what? You get a little bored over there in the passenger seat, and, and you just say, you know what? i move over. Get, I, I can handle this now. You've showed me how to drive. I'm going to take back control of the car. And he doesn't fight you for it. He says, well, okay, that's what you want. And so Jesus is in the passenger seat. And you know what? I mean, you're driving along and you have a horrific accident. Something happens to wake you up, and you realize, well, you know what? You're not all that great of a driver after all. And so you have to, Jesus, you know, I'm sorry, could you take back control of the car? <laughs> sure. Okay, and he does it every time. But he's not going to just be, you know, run you over with it. He's, 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 You know, he's living his life through you. And so you have to yield to that. That's our part, yielding to Christ's lordship. And so when we look at these commands and we say, hey, wow, these seem impossible. Or they are impossible for us, but they're not impossible for Christ because he's already done it. So he can do it through us. Because Jesus was always rejoicing. He was always praying. He was always thankful. Now, some of you may be sitting there, oh, no, I can point to, it says, Jesus wept he wasn't always rejoicing, then you misunderstand what rejoicing is. And this is what we're going to talk about. So God commands us to rejoice always. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean? What does this command mean? I think the best way to understand certain words in the Bible and certain words and verses in the Scripture is to understand what it cannot mean first. So let's understand what it cannot mean. Let me ask you this question. Do you think rejoicing always means that you always go around with some fake smile on your face and you know, you're, you're just upbeat and you're, hey, praise the Lord, you know, five for Jesus, you know, and you're just living your life. Do you think that's what it means? I don't think it means that. It can't mean that. Or ask yourself this question. This is a little more personal. Are you sinning? if you ever feel sad? Are you breaking this command if you ever feel sad? Are you breaking this command if you ever feel depressed or upset or or despondent or grieved? Could that be possible? I mean, I've met Christians who think so. You know, you look at their life and their life is anything but pleasing to the Lord. Their life, frankly, is a mess. But you ask them, hey, brother, sister, how's it going? oh, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Really? Oh, yeah, just, just just, believe in Jesus, just believe in Jesus. But their life is a mess. And they bought into the whole positive confession. You know, the charismatic movement teaches, you know, your words have power, power to create circumstances. That's why they say, Joel Osteen and others, oh, don't you just say to your, situation, you know. I command this. (laughs) They really believe that their words have power to create things. It's really, really odd. But that's what they believe. And so there's some people, even in churches, fundamental churches, that have bought into that. And so they're they're unwilling to address the problems in their life because they feel, you know what? Okay, God says they have cancer and they have six months. Well, they're just going to believe God for a healing. I'm just speaking truth to God. And he's going to, he, I, I this, this cancer be gone in the name of Jesus. And in six months, they're dead. And it's like, wow, wait a minute. Where's God in that? Maybe God sent the doctors with the right medicine to deal with the situation. And that was part of his plan for you. See, we can't be so quick to just say, oh, I'm only going to do this. And, you know, God sometimes uses a variety of circumstances in our lives. And some of those circumstances cause us to be sad, cause us to be depressed, cause us to be upset. You don't have to just walk around with a happy face all the time praising the Lord. That's not what this verse means. Because if rejoicing always meant that, if it meant you always had to be upbeat and you never had any feelings of sadness whatsoever, I have a real problem because... Neither Jesus nor Paul was always happy. It's interesting, in the Greek language, in the original language, the shortest verse in the Bible is this verse. Rejoice always. In the Greek language it's the shortest verse in the Bible. But did you know that the shortest verse in our English New Testament is John 11.35? Jesus wept. I think there's some irony there. Jesus wept. See, as he faced the cross, Hebrews 5.7 tells us, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication, listen, with loud cries and tears. Do you think Jesus was a little upset? Yes, I think he was. 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul describes himself as this. He says in in verse 8, the end of verse 8 there, he says, we are treated as impostors, and yet are true. Verse 9, he says, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, and then he says this in verse 10, as sorrowful, yet always, what? Rejoicing. In Romans 12, 15, Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice, and what? Weep, cry with those who weep. regarding the trials that God brings into our lives to train us as his children. He allows hard things into our life for a purpose. The Bible says in chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be what? Joyful. (laughs) Seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. So what does Paul mean when he commands us to rejoice always, if it doesn't mean you always have to be happy. Well, first of all, I think you have to realize that he wrote this letter to new believers who were suffering persecution because of their faith. It says so much back in chapter 3, verses 3 to 4. He says in verse 3, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you know you were destined for this. He says that you were to suffer Affliction, persecution. So this was part of the audience that Paul was writing to when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica. And the command follows Paul's exhortation um, that we should not even that we should that we should not get even when someone mistreats us. In Matthew chapter five, verse eleven to twelve. Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you, when falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And then he says this, rejoice and be glad. Wow. For your reward is in heaven and it's great. Or in James chapter 1 verses 2 and 3, James says, consider it what? All joy. When everything's going great? No, he doesn't say that. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren. That's the in Christ part, right? Only Christians Christians can really do this. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. In the original language, that means multifaceted, multicolored trials. They come from every angle. It's not like you can expect it. You're hit with things that sometimes just blow your mind. Like, where did that come from? Why am I stuck in this trial now? He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That will happen if you cooperate with God when you're going through a trial. But the problem is, many of us, when we encounter a trial, what do we do? Fall to our knees. God, please get me out of this. That's what we do. And and what Paul is saying is sometimes God wants you not to come out of it. He wants you to go through it. And as you go through it, you're going to be stronger. You're going to be able to trust him more because he took you through it. It's kind of like coming up on a bridge, and the bridge looks a little rickety and rackety, and you got the truck, and you're going, eh, I don't know if I should take the truck across this bridge. It just doesn't look too, too healthy. So you pull off and you park alongside the road and all of a sudden this big semi comes up and just rules right across that bridge. All of a sudden you're going, well, that's not bad. He weighs a lot more than I do. I, I could definitely, I could take my truck. And so you drive across the bridge. It doesn't seem so scary anymore. Why? Because you saw someone else go through it or over it. So consider it all joy. In Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, Paul says this. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. When's the last time you did that? Exalted in your tribulations, in your trials. Knowing that tribulation or trials brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Once again, in Christ, you have the supernatural ability to deal with whatever comes into your life as a child of God. And so, given their difficult circumstance, the people in Thessalonica here, um, they really probably looked at this command to rejoice always. They had to view it not primarily as a matter of feelings, but rather of obedience. See, Paul's not telling us, well, be happy and then rejoice always. no. He admits, he knows from his own life, there are times in life when you are not happy. When the Christian walk is not some blessed bed of roses. Sometimes it can be very miserable. But he says, you know what? Even in those times, you need to rejoice. You need to rejoice because you know that those times have come from the Father's hand. Nothing's coming into your life outside of what God desires for you as his child. So it's not a matter of feeling joyful. It's a matter of saying, you know what? I'm going to obey God. And this applies to a lot of different areas of life. It, enjoy, it, it applies to church life. Sometimes, you know, you get up and you say, I don't want to go to church. Well, it doesn't matter what you want to do. It doesn't matter how you feel you want to do it. That's irrelevant. The real answer is, are you going to obey God? Are you going to do what God has instructed us to do? Or some of us in our marriage. You know, are we going to obey God in our marriages? Or are we going to do what we want to do? Because we feel a certain way at a certain time. See, this is why... Marriage is so important. This is why marriage should be elevated. Because it is, basically, it's a commitment. It's a promise. God created marriage, male and female, to be married here on earth, for their time here on earth, and to operate as one. but we don't treat marriage that way. It's easier to just, you know, overlook the uh, we just don't get along so we're just going to move on in our lives. That's not right. That's being disobedient to God's word. Is it easy? No. Even those of us who have been married for many years will tell you honestly, it is not easy being married. It's not. Because you're married to a sinner and you're a sinner. And you're both called to live together in perfect harmony and bliss as sinners saved by God's grace. Now, if when God saved us, our perfect, our practice was perfect, it might not be so bad. But when he saves us, he doesn't guarantee our practice will be perfect. He doesn't say, okay, you know what? I'm getting in the front seat and I'm driving the car and you have no say in the matter. So from now on, we're going my way. We're going to do what I'm going to do. And you know what? You're not going to sin ever again. That's not what he does. He says, no, I'm going to live my life through you. But you know what? You have to yield your life to me. He doesn't just come in and plow his way through and take over. So it's very much a cooperative effort every day living for the Lord. Because when you're in difficult trials or people have maybe mistreated us, whatever it might be, because of our faith, we have a choice. This is what Paul wants us under. We have a choice. We can either focus on the trial and, and oh, it's so big, it's so horrible, I feel so bad, and get into the whole self-pity And Just sit around and study your navel and how bad things are for you and woe is me and you just don't understand, pastor. Or you know what? You can set your mind on things above. And you can, you know, I'm not going to focus on this trial anymore. I'm tired of focusing on the trial. I'm going to focus on where Christ is at the right hand of God, where our life is hidden in him. And I'm going to rejoice in that fact. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 4 says, If you have been raised with Christ, seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, then he says this, If that's true, set your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's why we can rejoice, because we understand our life is in Christ. Even in Philippians 4.4, Paul commanded us, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always, he says. And then he says, "Again, again, I say rejoice. It's almost like when he said that, rejoice in the Lord always, some people in the Philippian church, wait a minute, Paul, you don't understand what I've been through. He goes, no, again, I say rejoice. Paul's saying, Been there, done that, pal. You have to have an attitude that rejoices through those things. And that is the phrase, rejoice in the Lord. You have to be in Christ to have this kind of power, to have this kind of joy in your life. The problem is, we have people within the church that think they're in Christ, they think they've made a commitment to Christ. But their commitment is literally on the surface. They think somehow because they come to church, uh, they should get the reward. They get the trophy. Well, I'm here on Sunday. And I wasn't even late. No. That doesn't get you any brownie points. It's like being recruited by the 49ers. In the first practice, you show up. Hey, I'm here. I'm here. Look at me. I- I'm actually here. What are they going to do? They're going to laugh in your face. They're going to say, we're great. We're glad you're here, but you know what? Let's go out in the practice field, and we'll see how long you're here. We'll see how you do. We are eternally in the Lord through faith in Christ. Therefore, we can always rejoice in the Lord. It doesn't matter what life dishes out to us. Our joy cannot be totally oblivious to circumstances, but neither should it be governed by them. This is where a proper understanding of what this word means. So rejoicing is this. I would define it this way. is a conscious attitude of contentment. Hope and happiness. It's a conscious attitude of contentment, hope, and happiness that comes from deliberately focusing on Christ and the eternal treasures that we have received freely from Him. What's it mean to rejoice always? It's a conscious effort of contentment, hope, and happiness that comes from deliberately focusing on Christ and the eternal treasures that we have received freely from him. Sometimes, is it difficult to do that? Yes. I would say usually yes, especially the world we live in today. Sometimes we have to fight to rejoice. We have to fight to rejoice. It's not going to come naturally. We see this often in the Psalms. Turn over to Psalm 5. I read this for the worship team this morning. Because Psalm, in the Psalms we see this. It's so real sometimes because the Psalms, sometimes they begin with the psalmist, which is like a book of songs, Basically. And the psalmist is crying out, his heart is devastated, his heart is broken, and he's crying out for God to help him in the midst of some life-threatening trial. But usually by the end of the psalm, the psalmist, because he's focusing on the right things, puts the pieces of the puzzle together, and all of a sudden you see his, his just uh, incredible threat that he's threatened with, it's overcome, and there's a, a deliberate change to focus on the Lord. And you see here in Psalm 5, he, he begins, in David's mentioning here his groaning and his cry for help. He says, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. That doesn't sound joyful. <laughs> give attention to the sound of my cry. That doesn't sound joyful. My King and my God For to you do I pray. Oh, Lord, verse 3, in the morning you will hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. And then what does he do? He says, and I watch. I watch. It it speaks of expectancy. Hey, I've gone to God. I've I've laid my trials before God. Now I'm going to sit back. I'm going to be patient. And I'm going to see how God works this out. Because it's his problem, not mine. As one of his children. Verse 4, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, he says in verse 5. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. He's very real. You know, he's not, you know, in our culture today, we've made God into this giant love fest. Oh, God loves you so much. Oh, I just love you so much in the Lord. And he's being real here. He's saying, you know what? No, God doesn't delight in everything. He doesn't delight in wickedness because he's holy. The boastful or the prideful, they're not going to stand before him. He hates evildoers, those who who purposefully live their lives in a way that's contrary to Scripture, to his word. And he says, if you're going to lie, I'm going to destroy you. And he abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. So that's pretty clear. And then in verse 7, he says, but I through, look at this, the abundance of your steadfast, what? Love. I will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Fear doesn't mean the kind of fear that you're afraid he's going to hurt you. It's it's a kind of a a reverential awe. It's kind of like, wow, I can't believe I'm standing in the presence of this person. Verse 8, he says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. And as the psalm begins to unfold, we see his groaning because of his enemies and all this stuff is going on. And in verse 9, he goes into more about this. He says, For there is no truth in their mouth, speaking of their enemies. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. And then he says in verse 10, Make them bear their guilt. (laughs) In other words, God, do what's right. They're guilty? Okay. Let them bear it. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out for they have rebelled against you. See, part of living a successful Christian life is learning to cooperate with God. To learning to understand that, you know what? We are called to submit to God each and every day. It's part of our lives. And beyond that, God says, okay, if you understand that well, then when it comes to the church, you know what? You're called to submit to one another as believers. And he says there in verse 11, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. There it is. He starts off with groaning and crying, and he ends on a good note. He says, hey, I can rejoice because I'm taking refuge in you. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, verse 12. You cover him with favor as with a shield. In other words, you're completely protected in the Lord. Outside the Lord, you know what? You don't have a whole lot of hope. And this is the problem. Some people think, well, I'll just work it out. I'll I'll, I'll go my own course. No, you can't, especially as a Christian. As a Christian, you're called to commit to serving the Lord. You're you're called to commit to do what the Lord wants you to do, not what you want to do. I mean, in all honesty, if I wanted to to do what I wanted to do, I would be in Idaho with my grandkids. I just would. would. It would be fun to live with them, to be around them, to have an influence in their life. But that's not what God wants me to do. Paul himself had displayed this deliberate joy in the Lord when he was unjustly arrested, when he was beaten without a trial, when he was thrown in the stocks in the Philippian jail. At midnight, he and, and Silas were praying, and it says they were singing hymns of praise to God. In, in Acts 16, 25, it says, And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. The stocks were things they'd pull out your hands as far as they go. they put them in the stocks and they pull your feet out. I mean, it's a very uncomfortable position to be in. Well, that's where they were. And it says in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And don't miss the last part of that verse, in verse 25. It says, and the prisoners, including the guards and everybody else who was there, were listening to them. See, when you're going through a trial, as a Christian especially, when you're going through a hard time, you don't think people are watching you? You don't think all the people you witness to are watching you? Oh, boy, look at what happened in Steve's life. I wonder how he's going to handle this. I mean, he was preaching to me two weeks ago. Let's see what he does now. People are watching you like a hawk. How are you going to respond in the midst of trials? Are you going to be rejoicing? Or are you going to be doing what so many other Christians do? Oh, it's me, man. I'm just was a tough week. I've been going through it. You know, You just don't understand. I think Paul understands. I think Christ understands. They've been there, done that. And even the apostles, this was true of them. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the Jewish leaders flogged them for preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. And it says, so they went on their way from the presence of the council after they got beaten, rejoicing. They rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name. Wow. Wow. What a a change in mindset. So to rejoice always means that we must make this deliberate choice to focus on the Lord and the unfathomable riches that we have in him, not our difficult circumstances. That's the only way you can do this. And this joy shines the brightest in dark situations. This makes the most impact when you're really into it, when you 've been with that bad diagnosis and you or' this relationship or that or whatever job or the boss is an idiot, whatever you might want to do, okay, whatever scenario you want to paint that does not bring joy into your life, you have to make a choice. You know what i'm going to trust God through this, because if we do all things with joy in the Lord rather than grumbling and complaining. What are we going to do? We're going to stand out. We're going to stand out like bright lights against the darkness. And they're going to say, what? How, do you, how are you handling this? In Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, Paul says just that. He says, do all things without what? Grumbling, without disputing. In other words, stop the arguing. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish In the midst, where? Of a crooked and twisted generation. You know what? You look around this world. If you don't think this world is crooked and twisted, I don't know what is. But he says at the end of verse 15, he says, Among whom, as Christians, you shine as lights in the world. It's so important that we understand what it means to have this kind of joy. And I think it's, it's built upon a proper perspective of biblical joy. Um, John MacArthur, in one of his commentaries, he gives reasons for believers to rejoice. And I'm just going to read them quickly, but um, I don't think they're in your notes. But it's a, it's a, it's a good, good several things, and you can find them in his commentary. He says, first of all, why should we be rejoicing? We should be rejoicing always in appreciation for God's righteous character. Which, even in trouble, he demonstrates so faithfully to believers. And he quotes a psalm, The Lord is my strength and my shield, my heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts with my song. I shall thank him. Secondly, they should have constant joy out of appreciation for Christ's redemptive work which derives from a gracious, loving, merciful, and compassionate God and for his infallible instruction. Think about that. God has provided for us the answer to our sin problem. He's provided a gift. He doesn't even charge us. He says, this is a free gift. I want you to know my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to understand why he died for you, for your sins. We should be joyful about that. Thirdly, he says, we should rejoice in appreciation of the Holy Spirit's ministry on our behalf. Think about that. Jesus could have just saved you and left you on your own, right? He could have. He could have said, okay, you know what? All your sins are forgiven. (laughs) Have fun trying to live the Christian life because you're not going to be able to. (laughs) That's not the God we serve. He says, you know what? No, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to live within you. Supernatural power. That raised Jesus out of the dead. That same power has the ability to live this life through us. I'm going to give you his word. I'm going to give you my word, the word of God. I'm going to give you the church where you can go and be taught the word of God. We need to be appreciative of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Fourth, he says, believers should rejoice always because of the vast array of spiritual blessings they possess. Some of them I just mentioned. Fifthly, he says they should have joy in God's providence as he orchestrates everything for their benefit. Thank God he orchestrates everything for our benefit. It'd be a train wreck if he didn't. Sixth, they should be joyful out of gratitude for the promise of future glory. One day we will be glorified as Christ is glorified. Seventh, answered prayer should always be a source of joy when we go to the Lord in prayer. Eighth, he says the appreciation of the gift of God's word. Ninth, The privilege of genuine fellowship should bring continual joy to the believer. I mean, aren't you glad you have a place here in this church to come and you can have fellowship with one another as the body of Christ? I mean, there's a lot of countries, they don't have this. They can't. they got to meet underground or whatever. No, we just kind of mosey in here on Sundays and think, oh, this is cool, you know, we've got a church, great. Or, Or think about the churches that have to set up church every week. My heart goes out to these dear brothers and sisters. And they got to bring in the sound system. They got to bring in all the chairs. They got to set everything up because they're meeting in a hall somewhere. They don't have a nice little building with a a roof over it to keep them out of the elements. You know, these are all things that God has provided for us the genuine fellowship. And then the last thing he says true believers cannot help but express their joy at the saving proclamation of the gospel. As the early church did, and he reads Acts fifteen three. He says, "Therefore, being sent on their way by the by the church, Paul and Barnabas and other believers were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren." Leon Morris, in his commentary, he mentions this about the first century believers. Quoting him, he says, "...persecution was always threatening and often actual. The believers were usually in certain circumstances and compelled to work hard for a living. Their lot can rarely have been other than hard." In other words, they had a very difficult road. But if we fastened our attention on these things, we put our emphasis in the wrong place. In other words, looking at them going, "...oh, they had it so hard. Oh, poor people." No, they thought more of their Lord than of their difficulties, more of their spiritual riches in Christ than of their poverty on earth, more of the glorious future when their Lord should come again than of their unhappy past. See, a joyful Christian is more concerned about glorifying God than about avoiding temporal difficulties. He thinks more of his spiritual riches and eternal glory than he does his present pain or his material poverty. Believers who live like that will fulfill this command, rejoice always. So how can we do this? How can we create this habit quickly? Focus, first of all, daily focus daily on the riches that God has freely given you in Christ. We don't have time to read it, but if you read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3-14, to 14, it will tell you these things. God chose you in him before the foundation of the world. In love he predestined you to the adoption as his child. He freely bestowed his grace on you in Christ. In him you have redemption and the forgiveness of all your sins lavished upon you by his grace. He has made known to you the mystery of his will, and he has given you an inheritance. And not only that, but he sealed you with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, what's your problem? <laughs> Second, not just focus on the riches that he's already given us, but walk in the spirit and not the flesh. We're told that in Galatians chapter 5:22, that fruit, the fruit of the spirit, one of the, 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 the fruit of the entirety of the, this, the, uh, the fruit of the spirit, is joy, one of the elements of that. And to walk in the spirit means daily to yield to him, to rely on your, his control in your life in every situation. Now, does that mean as soon as you make that thing, you're going to see results? No, because sometimes it takes time to produce fruit. You don't go to Home Depot and buy an avocado tree and take it home, plant it in your backyards and wake up the next morning and go, where are the avocados? Yeah, I bought the stupid tree. There's no avocados. No, it takes time. And if you're like my wife and I, we just kill the tree anyway, and it never gives us anything. But anyway, don't have a green thumb. It takes time to produce fruit. It doesn't just pop off the tree the day after you plant it. But if you walk consistently and constantly in the Spirit, eventually you'll see the fruit of joy in your lives. So walk in the Spirit, not the flesh. Thirdly, sing. Sing. Isaiah Twelve five says, "Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth." I always scratch my head, not just because I'm a musician, but because I'm a believer. When I meet a Christian, they come to church and say, oh, "I don't sing. I don't sing. Why not? I don't like to sing. Why not?" A little cantankerous. They got an issue. They're unwilling to share it with anybody, but there's definitely an issue there. So everybody else is singing, and they're sitting there, and, oh, I wish this would get over. Let's get to the real meat the teaching, and we have the teaching of the Word of God. Now, maybe they need to sing. We don't care what you sound like. It says make a joyful noise to the, the Lord. That's what we do every Sunday. I mean, if you're feeling down, get the hymn book out. Read through some of the hymns. Sing through some of the hymns. Sing of God's goodness, God's grace, His love. I mean, singing is, is, is a very important strategy, strategy to deal with depression, to deal with ill feelings, focusing on the riches that God has given to us. Did you know that one of the most frequent commands in the Bible is to sing? I looked it up. It occurs 150 times in 133 verses. That's quite a bit. So I think it's important to God that we sing. As a matter of fact, the longest book in the Bible was a song book, the book of Psalms. If you want to read through the book of Psalms, if you want to read through the book of Proverbs in in an organized fashion, I challenge you to do this. Every morning, get up and read five Psalms and one proverb. One chapter in Proverbs, five chapters in Psalms. And by the end of the month, by 30 days, you have read through the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs. And then guess what? You start it all over again. <laughs> the next month. It's just an easy way to do it. Well, about 10 minutes left, so we're going to hit the second one here. God commands us to pray without ceasing. Not just rejoice always, but pray without ceasing. Does this mean that you have to pray every waking moment? On your knees, before the law, Lord, hands lifted up, eyes bowed down. No, it doesn't mean that. It can't mean that. How do I know that? Because Paul and Jesus didn't do that. I mean, I remember one time I was driving with the grandkids, and I don't know what, we were talking about something. I said, well, let's just, let's just pray. Maybe we we're dropping somebody off the airport or whatever. And uh, I think it was Mason um, said, Grandpa, are, are, are you going to pray right now? I said, yeah, let's just pray. You know, well, Are you going to close your eyes? because we were driving on the freeway. It's like, well, no, I'm not. But, but that's our mentality, right? Unless we're down prostrate on the ground, that's, that's the only position to pray in. And that's not, that's not true. Um, you know, you can, you can, you can pray in, in all kinds of different positions. But here, the word pray is one of the most common New Testament words for prayer. Prosecumiae. The most common one used. It encompasses all aspects of prayer. It encompasses all aspects of submission, confession, petition, intercession, praise, thanksgiving. It's a very general term for prayer. I personally, rather than describe prayer as some kind of action that we do, I describe prayer as an attitude. I think the scriptures teach us that prayer is meant to be an attitude of complete dependence upon God, 24-7. doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It's not just an activity that we do. Now, do we do it sometimes as an activity? Yes. We pray here as a worship team, 8 o'clock in the morning. We pray over in the fellowship hall uh, after that. Uh, For some people, pray for the service on Tuesdays. They pray at the women's thing. On Thursday mornings, they pray at the, the, the women's prayer meeting. Okay, we have times of prayer, and we look at it as an activity, but it's not just an activity, it's an attitude. It's an attitude of constant dependence upon God. See, that's helpful because, well, can you do that without ceasing? Definitely. Someone described this word, praying without ceasing, they described it this way. It's kind of like someone who has a hacking cough. You know, somebody who just can't control it, they just keep on coughing. Now, a person with that kind of a cough doesn't cough continuously, even though they may be coughing a lot, but they, they cough what? Often. They cough, and they cough repeatedly. See, and that's what without ceasing means. It means constant. And it defines prayer as not some perpetual activity of kneeling and interceding, but as a way of life. A way of life marked out by a continual attitude of dependence upon God, an attitude of prayer. I don't think you can begin to understand Paul's command to pray continually without considering how faithfully, our Lord prayed during his earthly ministry. He's supposed to be our example. So as the Son of God, he was in constant communion, it says, with his Father. And the Gospels provide many examples of this. Even during the times when he went to the Mount of Olives, you remember this, to pray all night. He undoubtedly prayed with a kind of intensity that believers today know nothing or little about. I mean, to the point where he prayed, it says in Luke 22, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw from his disciples, and he knelt down and he began to pray. This is the night before his crucifixion. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And it says his sweat became like drops of blood. This is major stress in Jesus' life. Not worry, but stress. Physical stress. Stress poured out of his pores mixed with his sweat because the capillaries in his forehead probably burst. So blood was actually coming out of his pores, and so much so that it fell down upon the ground. So it wasn't like just sticking to his face, it was actually bleeding out of his pores. And he records. Jesus' prayer in the garden is a prolonged experience. He repeated, he pleaded with the Lord, with his father, three times to spare him from this cup. Lord, if there's any other way, man, if, if you got a backup plan here, now would be the time to share it. No, nope, don't have one, sorry. The level of his intense agonizing is beyond anything Christians have to face. But it illustrates the persistence that Jesus went three times to his Father. And this was God. He knew what the answer was going to be. He knows everything. But he continued as an example for us in persistence, kind of like the, the friend who came at midnight in Luke, 5, or Luke 11, verses 5 to 13, asking for a loaf of bread. He just keeps knocking until you go and you give him the bread. Most of us, I don't think, would answer the door at midnight. Or like the widow who keeps bothering the unjust judge in Luke 18. We just keep coming back until we obtain what we're asking. It also uniquely exemplifies what the Apostle Paul meant when he instructed the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. Why? Why should we pray without ceasing? Well, first of all, it should be our desire to glorify the Lord when we pray, it glorifies the Lord. Secondly, the desire for fellowship with God. That's what prayer is. Prayer isn't just going to God and telling them all your problems. Prayer is having fellowship. Thirdly, believers will pray for God to meet their needs. Give us our daily bread, right? Fourthly, Christians will pray persistently for God's wisdom as they live in the midst of a sinful world. James says, but if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Fifthly, the desire for deliverance from trouble motivates prayer. Sometimes, most times when we go to prayer, we're in trouble. Kind of like Jonah. It says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish. Do you think he was in a little bit of problems? I mean, he's in, he's in the stomach of a huge fish. That sounds like a problem. As humans, we shouldn't be there. With all the acid and all the, I mean, think about it. Just, this just makes me sick to think about it. I mean, I'll eat sushi once in a while, but not the fishy stuff. You know, give me the tuna that doesn't taste like fish. I don't know how some of you people, you know, eat that fish that just smells like fish. Whoa, can't do that. And he calls out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered him, I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice, Jonah said. So sometimes, being in trouble motivates our prayer life. Sixthly, all desires, all Christians desire relief from fear and worry. I don't think we wake up in the morning saying, boy, I hope I get to worry a lot today. I hope I'm fearful of a lot of things today. No, we don't wake up that way. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, be anxious for nothing, nothing, no thing, not one thing. Don't be anxious about it. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then guess what happens? Then the peace of God. The peace of God, which far exceeds our understanding of peace, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I mean, in this world of chaos, hopefully you want a little bit of peace. We can have the peace of God when you come to Christ. Seventh, our motive is gratitude for past blessings. We should be thankful for God and what he's done for us. Eighth, believers pray to be freed from the guilt of sin. David expressed in Psalm 32, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave my sin, the guilt of my sin. It doesn't say, yeah, then you took my nose and you shoved it down in it. and You made me wallow and beg for... No, that's not the kind of God we serve. Is it hard to come to Christ? Is it hard to come to God and acknowledge your sin before him? Yes, it is. And he can't do it unless he enables you to do it, frankly. But when he does it, and you come to him afresh and you go, wow, God, you know what? I don't know why I've done this. I haven't done this before. Yeah, I have all this sin, Lord. Now, you know what? Thank you for forgiving me. I want to live for you. He takes that burden of sin off your back, and you are free in Christ. And it's the best thing that could ever happen to you. Any believer will tell you that. We're freed from the guilt of sin. Ninth, believers concerned for salvation for the lost. Some of you have loved ones. Some of you have family members that are not saved. They haven't come to Christ yet. What do you do? You pray for them. It's a desire to see the lost, one to Christ. And then lastly, we pray without ceasing so that our spiritual growth, so that we can grow in Christ. How can you develop this habit of praying without ceasing? First of all, know that you can't do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. Once again, you have to come to Christ. You have to ask the Holy Spirit to help you with this. Secondly, send up short prayers wherever you're at. It doesn't matter if you're driving down the freeway, if you're waiting right at the DMV line, whatever you're doing, send up some prayers. You can do it. Nehemiah did it. Dave read from Nehemiah this morning. He was before the king, King Artaxerxes. And it says that he was... Uh, He had been sad in the king's presence, and this was a very serious offense. And Nehemiah was very afraid, and he explained to the the king that he was sad because his home city, Jerusalem, was desolate and it was destroyed. And the king asked what Nehemiah Nehemiah would request. Now think about it, You're, you're back in that time, you're before a king who's all powerful, and you say the wrong thing off with your head. But what does Nehemiah do in chapter 2, verses 4 to 5? It says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said to the king. (laughs) He just stopped and he prayed. I don't think he got down on his knees. I don't think he said, excuse me, uh, king, I got to (laughs) pray. No. He just did it. You can pray short prayers whenever you need to. Thirdly, spend time in God's word and prayer each morning. Jesus started out that way. I think we should start it out that way. Fourth. Read some good books on prayer. And next week I'll have a little handout that just gives you a a little list of some of the books um, that have been a blessing uh, to to myself and others dealing with prayer. But as we close this morning, next week we'll be looking at thanksgiving and giving thanks in everything. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that we can rejoice always because we are in Christ. Not because we're happy, not because our circumstances dictate that we are joyful, but, Lord, it's a decision that we can make based upon the authority of your word that we are commanded to rejoice always. Not only that, but we're, we're commanded to pray unceasingly, to pray without stopping. And, Lord, that's really an attitude of dependence upon you. Each and every morning we should be dependent upon you throughout the day even through the evening. And Lord, we ask that you would remind us of these things, that we could put these into practice in our own lives. And Lord, that we would stop being overwhelmed by what we're seeing here on earth, whether it's elections or whether it's our own lives, our own jobs, our own relationships. Help us to stop looking at those problems and look to you as the only one that can give us answers to deal with those problems. And so, Father, we pray for all who are gathered here this morning. We pray that if there's any here that has yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, even this morning might be that moment when you call that person, you're tugging on their heart. You need to trust me. You're saying to them. As their creator, you're, you're, you're communicating to them. They, they need to put their trust, their faith in you, in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of their sins. And then they can start to understand what it means to have joy. Then they can start to understand what it means to have prayer, communication with you, and thanksgiving. But without Christ, it's impossible. And so we pray for the salvation of their souls, that they would turn their heart, they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And for believers here, I just pray that we would examine our own hearts, our own lives before you, and help us to live in a way that's honoring to you, not some of the time, not when it's convenient, even when it's hard, Lord, I pray that we would have the wherewithal to trust you to live this life through us because we can't do it on our own. And so, Father, we thank you for your goodness. We pray you bless the food across the way to our bodies as well. And we just close now with a song in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with one last song.